G'day and welcome to Season 2 of the Far North Leadership Podcast. I'm Jeff, and in each episode of the podcast, I interview a leader from the beautiful city of Cairns in Far North Queensland. It's called the Far North Leadership Podcast for that simple reason, because it features leaders from a variety of sectors across the Far North. I believe that we can grow as leaders simply by listening to and learning from each other. I don't know about you, but every time I meet a leader or I overhear a leadership conversation, it helps me grow. So enjoy the conversations and I hope you find something that applies to your life and leadership in every single episode. In this episode, I interview the Honourable Member for Leichhardt, Warren Ench. Warren was born in Babinda, which is south of Cairns, and has spent most of his life working in and for far north Queensland, and he's best known for his political leadership. Warren has represented the electorate of Leichhardt since 1996, with a short break from 07 to 2010, which we'll discuss in the interview. Now, as a member of the Liberal Party, Warren has served in a few roles on the executive, on committees, on task forces, and as chief opposition whip. Now, for those listeners who find themselves with a different point of view on some of the issues that Warren talks about, listen also for the leadership that he provided on those issues and see what you can learn for your own leadership in your context. There's a little bit of background noise early in the interview and keep an ear out for the sirens because emergency services went past halfway through our conversation when I met with Warren in his office last week on Mulgrave Road here in Cairns. I'd like to start on a personal note uh, with you quitting politics just when your career was getting started in 2007 to spend time with your teenage son. How did you reach that decision? Why did you do that? Well, it was a a very difficult decision, actually, but it was the right decision. Um, uh, My son's mum and I weren't living together from when he was about three years old. And... um, I got into politics when I when when he was two, so it was a year after we got in. We 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 went our separate ways, but as he started to grow uh, in his early years, in you know, six or six year old, five six year old, whenever I'd go and visit, he was always it was always a real issue for him. He, he used to get very very distressed when I was leaving. And one particularly difficult evening when I was going and uh, uh, in a moment just said to him, mate, look, you've got to understand that little one, little ones need their mums. And we call it, adults call it mum's time. So it's important that for you that you, you, you spend as much time as you can with your mum and uh, uh, she also needs you. But uh, when you're a teenager, we call that dad's time. And that's when you really need to be spending time with me. And I promise you, whatever, irrespective of what I'm doing then, if I can't give you the time, I'll stop doing it. And uh, you can come with me, come be with me. And he'd never forget it. He, He stopped pretty much straight away and said, well, do you promise? And I said, absolutely. And that was the end of the issue. Um... Because after that, uh, I was becoming quite concerned because whenever I'd go up there, he was sort of only half interested in me. There was no more performances when I left. Um, but at the time, I mean, I had no expectations in relation to this job. Uh, I, uh, I knew that the average political life was about six years. And at that stage, I would have been in the job for about, I don't know, three or four so I thought to myself, the chances are I'm not going to be here anyway. And as it turned out, uh, I actually went on to the executive in 2008. 
and uh, remained there for most of the Howard years, um, which a lot of people, I suppose, um, in my situation would have been taking a great deal of delight in the fact that they'd been promoted. And I did. I mean, I enjoyed, I enjoyed my portfolio's responsibility. But leading up to 2000 and, well, up to 2014 election, my son again reminded me that it was uh, of my promise. And uh, I said to him, well, mate, this will be my last election. And there was a lot of stirring up about that, you know, from the other side, you know, he's going to retire. But um, I knew I was locked into it. So coming up to 2007, I made it clear that I wouldn't stand. In fact, I, made it, I got a phone call from my wife in 2000, my ex-wife in 2006, just asked me if I was prepared to become a full-time dad. I said, yes, why do you ask? He said, well, Jake wants to come and live with you. And I said, oh, that's nice. Exciting. I'll make sure I make the arrangements. So that, and then I, it's sort of an afterthought, I said, well, how do you feel about it? She burst into tears. She said, I hate it. But that's what he wants to do. So he moved in with me about a year before the 2007 election and spent the next three years uh, when I and I was pursued relentlessly by the Prime Minister to Howard at the time to change my mind but I said I've made a promise I can't break it and um, they knew that if I didn't stand they'd lose the seat and um, but I felt that my obligation to my son was far more important as a political enhancing career, no, of course not. But as something that builds a relationship with your son, it's just, I mean, it's just heaven on a stick. I mean, my son and I, Jake and I, have the most amazing relationship. And when he was getting ready looking at uni, he was the one that came to me and said, Dad, I'm, I want you to go back. I know you weren't ready and appreciate what you've done, but... I said, well, you know, James Cook University, you know, you're going to go to, no, 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 I've decided he's going to go to Griffith on the Gold Case. And the basis of that was it was equal disadvantage for me and his mum, because his mother at this stage was living in Grafton in New South Wales. And um, I mean, that boy's now gone on. He's just, uh, last Wednesday, he um, graduated with his second degree. Wow. Psychology and now with an MBA. Wow. He's looking at a third degree, he's doing, bought himself a house, he's looking at buying his second house, he's 25 years old, you know so he's doing exceptionally well but the relationship that we have now is just like it could, it could never have been like this if I had not done what I'd done, so yeah. I, if I, would I do it again? In a heartbeat yeah. Can I ask you about leadership in general as a concept what does leadership mean to you? Um Look, being prepared to make hard decisions and have, and standing by those decisions, that's probably the, the most difficult thing in leadership. Um, it's very easy to be a populist. And we see many of those in politics. And sometimes you've got to make a decision that is in the national interest that may have an impact on a small group within your own interest. You've got to be prepared to stand up and make a decision there that is in for the betterment of the country and where the consequence of it. And a good example of that was 
when we brought in the, the gun laws. Um, from my background, coming off Crocodile Farm and from the cattle stations, and being an I at that stage I probably owned about 20 guns. Uh, there was an expectation that I would be totally anti-gun laws. And I remember at the time Bob Catter was a uh, was a, uh, a member of the coalition and he called a rally at Munro Martin Park and my office was in Sheridan Street down the road. I wasn't invited and I thought, well, bugger it. He's coming into my area. I, I am going up there. I'm prepared to defend the decisions. So I went there and I sat up on a, on a bench waiting for Catter and he was respectably about an hour and a half, two hours late. I'm sitting there. I didn't bring a hat. And the sun was stinking hot. And they're just sitting there. There's a huge crowd of people. And I'm just waiting for them. Anyway, next thing, Catter's Commonwealth car arrives and he gets out with his big hat and there's umbrellas waiting for him and bottles of water which weren't offered to me. And he's ushered over and sits down and I said, hello, Bob, how are you? And then I was asked to speak first. And I stood up and I just said that I think it's a good thing what we're doing. You know, there are lots of women that are locked into remote properties and are fearful to leave because of the gun in the cupboard or the gun under the, under the bed. And also the number of kids that end up killing themselves with unsecured firearms. And that really there is no necessity for somebody living in a metropolitan area to have any sort of firearm, quite frankly. Also, I mean, I'm a bit of a tight ass. Uh, firing off a dozen rounds in a semi-automatic weapon to shoot a pig that you can kill or shoot a, a injured animal with one shell, but you shoot off half a dozen or a dozen just because you can, uh, it becomes expensive. And so I, I just went through and said, these are the real, I think we'll be a better society for it. Well, I got heckled and booed and jeered and my head was burning from the sun. As you see, not a lot of air there. So. Anyway, when I sat down, I thought, oh, well, at least I've got a colleague here that will back me up. And Carter stood up and he went off like a crow about how he wants his gun so he can protect his little baby girls in the night time. If anybody comes in, he will shoot them. And, he, and they're cheering and ranting. And I thought to myself at the time, you know, I don't feel any love here, quite the opposite. But I felt really good that I was making the right decision. And so that's to me is leadership. Yeah. And more recently, of course, my advocacy for same-sex marriage. I was the least expected person to do it. As I often say, I feel like a, a turd in a swimming pool, quite frankly. A uh, real floater. Everybody want to kick me away. But, and it took 14 years, so sometimes these things take. But I think, you know, that's the biggest social change that this country has had in 50 years since the Aboriginals vote, right to vote. And it was the right thing to do. And to be able to stare down, I mean, I've had, I've had candidates standing up, resigning from my party and standing as independent conservative candidates because they hate the fact that I'm supporting the gays and all this sort of nonsense. They don't stop to think that the gays, as they so quickly refer to them, or the poofs or whatever, um, 
living, breathing humans that um, get hurt with this sort of norms. I know people's talk to me like that. If you take the time to sit down, I mean, they're no different to anybody else. I mean, and 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 and, and so why should they be? You know, we are supposed to pride ourselves in not having any discrimination in this country. Why, why would we discriminating against somebody on the uh, on the basis of their sexuality? And I mean, if you've got two people that are living together and have committed a lifetime together in a totally monogamous, loving relationship. Why would that relationship be, whether it be the sexual side of it or, or the, uh, the emotional side, why would it be any different to anybody else in, in a similar relationship just because it's, it's two the same sex? It just doesn't make sense. So, again, being prepared to stand down people, be popular, be unpopular if it's necessary, if you do it, and be prepared to stand up and wear the consequences of it. And I think in this case, I think it's been amazingly successful. So they, to me, that's that's to me that's leadership, yeah. and just being prepared to, to do what you believe is right, and be prepared to be judged. I imagine that approach to leadership and making tough decisions was refined while being chief opposition whip. What what is that role like? I imagine it's pretty much like butting heads a lot of the time. Well, it is, but uh, you also you know you're, you're the chief confessor. You've got to know what's happening, and you've got to be prepared to have. You need to be able to offer comfort, but at the same time, you also need to have blunt discussions and and tell people exactly what it, you know as it is. And I, you know, I had those discussions with the, with with leaders of the opposition and others uh, without any fear or favour. It's also about building relationships with the other side of politics because. You've also got a chief whip in the government. When I was the chief opposition, you've got a chief government whip. And it's about building relationships and trust with the other side to be able to negotiate outcomes. If you've got a need for a concession for one of your colleagues, you've got to be able to have the relationship where you can go to your counterpart. In that case, it was Joel Fitzgibbon. Say, mate, I've got a problem. I need you to help me here. No questions asked. Might be a personal issue that somebody has, and them having the confidence and the friendship in you to be able to do it and be able to reciprocate. And one of the ways that I did it with Josh Joel when we first came in, he was the chief governor, was that I bought a very expensive bottle of Hunter red wine, and because Joel's got the hunter in his electorate. And that bottle of wine basically was the baton. And whoever held the, held the baton had the right to ask for an unque- no questions asked favour. And so I would go over to Joel with that bottle of wine. I'd put it on his desk and say, I need a favour. And he said, what is it? And I'll tell him whatever it might be. And he would say yes, and that bottle. And he would stick to that. He wouldn't seek permission from the from his prime minister or from our prime minister, who just happened to be Labor or anybody else. He would make that decision himself, and he would defend it. And when he needed something from me to help to facilitate something they were doing, over he'd come with that bottle, and he would ask the question, and I would again agree without it without seeking any advice from anybody 
And that went backwards and forwards for three years on a fairly regular basis. And at the end of that parliament in 2013, he came over and we sat down in my office and we cracked the toy. No, he went to his office, cracked the lid off that bottle and we drank it together. To me, that was a smart way of dealing with it, but it helped to build that relationship and it made sure that we accommodated the needs of our own members. Yeah, it's an interesting, it was an interesting, it helps to build relationships, but you've got to keep the team together, you know. Yeah. But I enjoyed it. Do you find a different approach to leadership is needed from Canberra to CanCBD to Badu Island, for example? No, it doesn't, actually, because the same principles apply. If I go up to Bardu and I see, I treat them with a, the same level of respect I would treat any of my colleagues in Brisbane or my constituents, in Canberra, my constituents here. But if I see something there that is that I don't think is right, I'll call it out and I'll, I'll, I'll raise my concerns about a particular issue. Um, and I won't sugarcoat things. Um, so I think that, and that's, I think that is very, very important. But at the same time, if somebody up there comes to me with an issue that's important to them, I will do everything I can to address that issue. I have a, a saying here uh, in my office that all of my staff have to live by. What I say, no matter how trivial the matter is, and somebody comes in and says something and they, they feel like they want to roll their eyes at me. And I say, it doesn't really matter what it is. If they've taken the time to come in and raise a concern here, we've got to treat that with the same level of seriousness. And I, what you've got to do is when you go and, and you deal with that and you go back to that person, I want you to put yourself in their shoes and ask yourself, would you be happy with the response that you're going to give them? And if the answer is no, go back and do some more work on it and come back. Now that doesn't mean to say that you get some individuals here that are just over the top. And, it's, and at that point, and I mean, I will defend my staff. And at that point, if I hear something happening out there that uh, I think is inappropriate of voices, I'll go out there and tell them to put a lid on it or ask them to leave. And I've done that. I had, I had one guy came in here and out of protest, got his four-year-old child to pee, not in this office in another office, to pee in the corner as a protest. And I asked them both, so sure both of them, I sure shifted out and I'd be them from the office. It's just not respectful. And um, if they want a legitimate issue, we'll deal with it. But um, none of the nonsense. And the same goes for Bardu. Bardu here, every one of them are entitled to the same level of, uh, of respect and attention to whatever their issues might be. Yep. Who's one of the best leaders that you've personally known? Oh, John Howard. John Howard was outstanding. And uh, I love John to pieces. He's, uh, been a, I, I was always seen as one of the rusted old Howard supporters. And uh, always, always was. And for the, we, we absolutely thrived and prospered in this leadership. I think, however, towards the end, and I, I did say this at the end, when Arthur Sinodinus left, which was his uh, chief of staff, um, I think that it was nearly time for, for it was time for him to start to move on. He'd served his time. He'd done this. You know, some of the stuff that he did, I mean, you know, the, the government was for a start. GST reforms, I mean, that was very, very courageous, but very necessary. There's a whole lot of other things. It was really
really nice to be part of a government that actually did that, you know. And so, uh, by all means, but I mean, if you're looking more internationally, I um, know His Holiness the Dalai Lama very well, in that I am the chair of the Tibetan parliamentary group. And so whenever His Holiness, His Holiness comes to Australia, I'm always have the opportunity of catching up with him for a meal or catching up with him for some personal time. And um, he's somebody that I just absolutely love, I just admire. So, you know, a pretty, pretty high bar yeah. on both cases, actually. And uh, so, and both of them in their own way um, have been outstanding leaders. What's changed about your electorate here, apart from the boundaries, the geographic boundaries, over the last 20 years? So there's lots of things have changed. I can remember coming in here, uh, my maiden speech in 1996, where I reminded people that the bitumen finished before Lakeland Downs, and that if you wanted mobile, you had to stay within about a five-kilometre mobile phone, you had to stay within about a five-kilometre radius of the CBD, and very few other spots. And I look at it now, I mean, we're even putting mobile services into places like the Archer River Roadhouse, the, um, uh, the Musgrave Roadhouse, Rossville, for goodness sake, Cape Tribulation, all these very difficult. So that's been made, the, the connectivity has been very, very significant. But on the negative side, the anonymity of, of, uh, of the internet is quite frightening. People form their opinions based on something they see on Facebook or something or other, and they'll be referred to another site, which just reinforces the view. And they can go through a dozen sites, and yet they come in here and they'll start raving about a particular issue. I say, "Well, wait a minute. What about? No, I seen it on Facebook, and you can't, you can't change that. And um, and what it's doing, I think, is making a certain element, quite a large element of people very angry. And, and, and I don't know how you, how you deal with that. You know, they, they're just obsessed with, the, with, with their um, IT and they're losing their ability to be able to engage like you and I are here talking. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a worry. And, and I don't know, I, I, I don't know how, how we can how are we going to deal with that? I, but uh, yeah, that's been the biggest change. And, and there's a lot, of, a lot of the younger ones getting very anxious. And this is all more to do with the scare campaign they have on environmental issues and things like that, where you've got elements out there saying that the end of the world is they know it's going to happen in the next five or ten years. And I've had them in the office here, they're literally in tears. What's the government doing? Because you've just about killed my world, you know. I'm saying, well, there's lots of positive out there too, you know. This business of you've got to save the reef because it's going to be dead in 10 years. And I say, well, it's not since the reef does not need to be saved. We do not need to, the reef is doing exceptionally well under the circumstances. We need to manage it and we need to, to make sure that we continue to understand it and do work to minimise the impacts. But we don't need to save the reef. The reef is going, you know, just it's, in the last few years it's expanded by another 19%. Has there been challenges with bleaching, groundless, all that? Of course there has. And we need to address those. 
but you know don't frighten the hell out of people you know, this young lass never been to the reef and in fact I I, I bought a marine operator of some 35 years and a reef scientist in here to sit down with this because when they were going to do this protest in town and the leaders of it wanted to demand it to see me I said well come in but don't bring don't bring your um, your parents your teachers or any activists with you just bring half a dozen of you and let's sit down and I want to hear what you've got to say and I had reef scientists and that here just to, to give them another perspective a couple of those kids were absolutely petrified that the world was close to an end. And I organised for six, um, six uh, reef trips for them. So they go and they look for themselves. Not one of them has come and picked it up. Not one. For them and a parent to go out with them, to have a look for themselves. And, because they're getting the information from one side. It's not balanced. Just one final question. So 19 years in, in the role and over 23 years in time, is there any one particular thing that you are just most proud of and pleased about what you've been able to achieve as a member for Leichhardt? Well, if you're talking about nationally and internationally, you don't go past same-sex marriage. You know, that is the biggest social change in 50 years. I know a lot of people didn't like it, but I mean, here it's over 12 months now. And the world has changed, and, and the reality is we don't have gay marriage in Australia anymore. This is a point I make to people. We do not have same-sex marriage in Australia. We just have marriage. We don't discriminate. How good is that? And it really made a lot of people happy. It really made them feel included in part of our society. So you just can't go past that. On a local, on a, on a national one, I think gun laws was something that I was very strongly supportive of and um, something that I'd be very proud of. Uh, from a local perspective, it was being able to successfully get the, the trifecta of the, of the medical school, the veterinary school and the dental school and then the National Institute of Tropical Health and Medicine. You know, they're major game changes for this region. And of course, really build our capacity as far as education. So, so there, but most of the, the ones that, the, that I, that I, the achievements, the small personal ones, the stuff that when they come into my office here with a problem that they seem is insurmountable and within a short period of time, because we know where to go, we fix it for those individuals. It might be an immigration outcome, it might be a Centrelink outcome or things like that. These happen on a daily basis and to me that's the reason that I'm here and the reason that I enjoy the job and I fact, the fact is I've been here for so long now and this is my greatest disadvantage you now going into the next election is my longevity and you wouldn't believe Why that. Why is that? Well first of all my age, people say oh you know he'd been there for a long time, look at his age you know, but I'm really enthusiastic and um, they don't take into consideration the fact that I, that all the bureaucrats know who I am. I've got a very high national in, and an international profile. And they know if I come looking for something, I know what I'm looking for and I get a response. But I'll tell you what, you know, you know you're really, really making a mark on the world when you get international stars before they come to Australia asking if they, they can find me. So they, they really, the one person in Australia they want to meet is me. And that's, see me with him, you know who that is? 
Is that Cher? Yes. There you go. She wanted to come, come, looking, she come looking for me. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, and I mean, it's not just that uh, celebrity spotting, but I can't go anywhere in this country. In fact, when I travel around there, there are always people that know who I am because of those profiles that were built on my advocacy for various things. And that makes you makes me feel pretty good, you know. Makes me proud. And I guess the greatest achievement is being able to maintain the relationship I have with my children. That's just been amazing on this journey. Well, Warren, thank you so much for all your years serving Leichhardt and for the conversation today. Thank you. I look forward to another few years. <laughs> uh, 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 voters willing. Uh, I've still, still got plenty in me. Are you about a couple of months away, do you reckon, from the, from the uh, I reckon we're only weeks away from yeah. the announcement. Uh, I think it'll be in May. So not far away at all. Well, all the best in May. Thank you. Months. Okay, thanks. <laughs> It, uh, it was great to be able to spend time with a man who has represented our electorate here in Cairns and has been a federal politician for so many years. Now, obviously, depending on where you sit politically and on some other issues, you may or may not respect him on those aspects. But for his leadership over many years, it really was an honour. And, uh, you know, two, two things that really stood out to me from my interview with Warren. First of all was how much he talked about, you know, the role of a leader is really to make difficult decisions and to stand by them and sometimes even to cop flack for them. And every single leader has this, no matter what your context is or your scope of leadership or what the decisions are, you'll always have to make decisions that are really difficult and not everybody will agree. Uh, And so it was great to hear him talk about that. But also, I didn't really expect uh, the conversation about him being chief opposition whip to centre so much on relationships and the importance of protecting and maintaining those relationships. So there was lots for me to learn from this conversation and I hope for you also. In this season of the Far North Leadership Podcast, I'll release a new episode every month. All you need to do is subscribe on your favourite podcasting app and each new episode will appear when it's released. If you find this helpful or interesting, please pass it on to a friend or a colleague and I'll be back next month with another fascinating interview.